You thought that you could have it all And life could be a bar But you fell and scabbed your knee Now you can be free Hello Welcome, everybody, to the Recovering CEO podcast. Uh, my name is Derek Marabon, the Recovering CEO. have a very special guest here today, a uh, friend of mine from way back in college. Well, we didn't totally know each other in college, but she ended up marrying one of my best friends. And she's had an amazing journey since then. We won't talk about how long that's been, but it's. Uh, <laughs> we both went to Michigan State University. And her name is Libby Sider Nelson, and she is a life coach. She is a spiritual person she is in recovery and uh and she's a mom of three and she's just an amazing person so how are you today libby i'm good i'm great derek thanks so much for having me on i do have to do a quick correction which is that i myself did not go to michigan state you, did wait, you know that no I, I really thought you did i went to northwestern i went to northwestern oh embarrassing you know what i knew that oh my god that's so embarrassing <laughs> That's okay. That's all right. It's all good. Um, I just, I just, in case any of my Northwestern folks are listening, I don't want to, you know, deny my, my true story. So it's all about rigorous honesty. <laughs> thank you. No, thank you. From the get go. And yeah. we have talked about this because when Michigan State plays Northwestern, I remember now, I'm such a space it's contentious. Okay. Yeah. That's all right. That's all right. It's easy. When one bleeds green, it's easy to assume that all the rest of the world does too. And it's I really lived, true. my husband went to Michigan State, as you know, so I'm surrounded by green. No yeah, worries. And yeah. it's a big it's a big basketball day for Michigan State. It is. Yes, yes, yes. Um <laughs> awesome. So so Libby, so the, you're on the Recovering CEO podcast. And I you know I started this because I wanted to raise awareness, especially in the workplace. And also I think there's a lot of people out there who may come into recovery from different means. You know, maybe um be Maybe they don't realize they're an alcoholic. Maybe they don't realize they have an addiction. You know, maybe they're just kind of struggling in life. And I think that sometimes they might stumble upon a podcast like this and say, oh, you know, this, this resonates with me. Or this makes sense. And you were very mm -hmm. interesting to me, not, not only because I know you, but because you're kind of a life coach and you actually, you yourself have been sober now for a while. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you got there? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I've been sober um, since January of 2014. And my path, um, and I had become a coach about two years before that. So just a little bit about my story. Um, I come from a long line of folks who have coped with alcohol, uh, like so many of us have, um, those of us in recovery and not in recovery. And, you know, for me personally, I wasn't a huge drinker during my high school days. I really was focused on school and I was very involved in theater and performing and um, achievement. And I uh, really in college, um, as I mentioned, I went to a school where achievement was really important and um, it was a really competitive place to be. It was really competitive in the theater program. It was really competitive academically. And I sort of went from being a big fish in a small pond in my high school to being a little fish in a much bigger pond. Um, and I think that's when I look back sort of when I started to use alcohol to 
um, just cope with some of those uncomfortable feelings, you know, questions about who am I? Why am I here? What's special about me? How am I different? And it wasn't in a compulsive way, but I think, and, and I think we'll talk about this probably in the podcast, you know, humans use all different kinds of things to mute the um, excruciating reality of being alive, you know? And I mean, I think we turn to all different kinds of things and your podcast, you know, talks about that. You know, we turn to alcohol, we turn to shopping, sugar, sex, drugs, you know, fill in the blank. And so for me, I think that's just really the first time where I started trying to sort of mute down some of these deep feelings of, of discomfort and not enoughness that um, probably had been percolating you know, um, for a long time. So fast forward, you know, I have, my story is not super interesting. You know, I, I haven't had a, my recovery story is not super interesting. I, um, I progressively used alcohol more and more to cope. Um, I had three babies in two and a half years. Um, I have twins in there, so I'm not quite superhuman, but, um, yeah, it was a lot. I was, um, I had a spouse, have a spouse who at the time traveled a lot and worked really long hours. And I had no tools for self-care. I had no tools for boundaries, saying no, um, taking time to sort of um, take care of myself in any meaningful way. And I think we get self-care wrong a lot in our culture. It's one of the things I talk about a lot in my work is we kind of think it's manicures and vacations. And while that is great, um, Actually, self-care really shows up for most of us on a day-to-day level in terms of boundaries, addressing some of our character default settings like perfectionism, people-pleasing. And and I think a a lot of women, especially and women in business, um, are very uh, culturally groomed, you know, to feel that perfection is the route to success. So anyway, long, short Um, I just got to a place where, um, I was using wine every night to, um, to recover from, and it was the only method I had for self-care. So, you know, beset by need, work, personal kids, life, um, aging parents, you know, all day. And then, um, I would get my kids to bed and I would open the wine and pass out on the couch, you know, (laughs) by the end of the night. I mean, it just got to where this was a daily compulsive um, behavior. And the fact is that I'm super fortunate that I didn't have a bottom that was um, shocking, that made any headlines. I, you know, I have a lot of things that I got off the train. (laughs) The train was hurtling to a really... um, undesirable destination. I had seen it in other members of my family and I was able to, um, fortunately because of the way they paved the path for recovery before me, I was able to get off the train before, um, I hit anything too terrible. You know, the things that took the most hit were my own sense of self-worth, my own sense of integrity and integrity. We talk a lot about values in coaching, Value, uh, integrity is my number one value. And I just felt like, how could I show up each day teaching and sharing this work that I believe in so much and then numb myself, you know, into oblivion each night, get up the next morning, bogged down by regret, shame, guilt, and feeling like hell and, and do the work I did and, and look myself and, and other people in the eye. So Anyway, I've been talking a lot, um, but but about eight eight years ago, eight and a half years ago, I just decided that I couldn't keep doing that and 
um, and find any self-respect. And so I pursued, you know, pursued recovery with the support of a lot of amazing people who had paved the way before me, a lot of amazing women, and um, still am very active in my recovery on a day-to-day basis today. And the rest is history, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. In yeah. Well, no, I, I love that. And thank you for your vulnerability and for sharing that. Um, I think that's really important for people to hear, you know, and I was so happy when, cause we've known each other for a long time. Right. And, and as I saw you, yeah. you got sober and then you were like, so positively posting about it and sharing your experience and, and the love and uh, support that you got from your network was amazing. You know, and I think it was amazing. It was amazing. It was beautiful. And really Libby, you've always been one of the prime examples. You know, I always think of connection as the opposite of addiction and you have a really good Mm. job of connecting with people. And I think you've built a really strong network, you know, um, obviously the women you coach, um, and then your whole community, you know, you do book clubs and whatnot. Can you speak about how connection is important in your life? And is that one of the values that you talk about at all in your coaching? Yeah, absolutely. Connection is is in my top three, you know, top three values for sure, right up there with integrity and, and growth you know, are, are kind of my, my top three, at least for now, our values change might change over time. But um, yeah, you know, I think when we are in um, actively using whatever our, our numbing tool is, um, we are desperate for connection to your point. And, and I love that work by um, Gabor Mate's work around connection and addiction. I think it's, it's so vital because for me, I, I've always been a people person and I've always had wonderful friendships and supportive family. I grew up in a really wonderful family and with a lot of connection. But when I was drinking so much, I hid that side of myself. You know, actually, Derek, a lot of my really close friends were surprised that I told them I was getting into recovery because my people pleasing and perfectionism kept me at home drinking wine on the couch, you know? And so there was this whole part of me that I was carrying around and coping mechanism that I didn't share with anybody. And it really helped me along in my feelings of isolation. And um, like this sense that if people really knew me, would they still love me? And would they still care about me if they knew that this is, you know, what I was, how I was spending my, my time. And so anyway, I think now a really important part of my recovery is being in real authentic relationships and sharing my story. And I really think, you know, we talk in coaching a lot about stories and a lot about narratives. So all of us have stories that um, guide the way we move through the world. Stories that come from our families of origin, our communities of faith, our schools, our, our cultures, uh, our ethnic cultures. And, you know, for me, I think when we craft the narrative that we want, that we believe, we bring other people along for the ride. So there is a there's a cultural narrative that to ha- struggle with addiction, to struggle with um some of these undesirable behaviors is shameful. It's something that we should sort of cover up and um, and and say, what about these other things and, and sort of skirt around? But I really think that when we're transparent, like you're doing through this podcast, you know, when we're transparent about our stories, and that's not always easy to do right in the moment when we're struggling, you know, I think oftentimes we have to be a bit on the other side to talk 
with authenticity about that. But I think the more we're able to do that and to say to people, hey, it's possible to be connected, you know, loved, successful, build a beautiful life and have this be part of the story when we're inclusive instead of exclusive about sort of some of those more ugly, you know, parts of ourselves. Um, everybody, it's like Brene, I teach and facilitate Brene Brown's work. And, and she says, you know, the two most powerful words when we're in struggle are me too. And to know that we are alone, we are not alone in our struggles of being human. Um, that kind of connection um, is so life-giving. And now I can't imagine my life without it. You know, it's um, my, my people are everything, you know, my people are everything second to my recovery, you know, and spirituality. And then it's my people and the connections with them. I'm curious how connection has been a part of your, um, your path, Derek, and your recovery story. No, I appreciate that, Libby. Uh, you know, so I'm going to answer that, you know, you brought up one thought just real quick about, um, <laughs> you know, the movie eight mile with Eminem, right? Where, oh, sir. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a wonderful movie, you know, being from Detroit, I know you're from Philly. Um, Philly's more Meek Mill, but, uh, Eminem from Detroit, <laughs> but, uh, but in eight, in eight mile Eminem in the rap battle, he talks about, he says everything about himself that would be a put down. So he, he fully becomes vulnerable and admits all of his character defects and all of his shortcomings. And, and he takes away the power from anyone else to ever say anything about him because he said it all himself. Right. And I think that when we admit yeah. our vulnerabilities, then it gives us the feeling to be able to walk with, you know, there, there's nothing to hide. Right. And then nobody right. can hurt us. Totally. Yeah. And yeah, nobody can hurt yeah. us. And, yeah. um, but the connection thing is getting out ahead of it. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. And, uh, uh my, my, my daughters still have not watched that movie, which is shocking to me, but uh, they will one of these days. It's, I have a big list of one movies of movies that Derek wants to watch that the kids won't watch. Godfather. But, uh, You're not alone. Yeah. You're not alone. <laughs> yeah. But um, so, yeah, the connection, you know, it's so interesting. Like just recently, and so I, I've been sober, you know, over 25 years, right? And um, I mean, I'm 49 years old and... I feel like I keep peeling layers of the onion and learning about myself, right? I mean, this is, it's a lifelong journey. And, and as you know, in recovery, we keep working towards the perfect ideal, which is God, and I will never get there, you know? So it's like a, a journey. And mm -hmm. some people also talk about like a journey to my true self. That's another way to look at it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But it's a lifelong journey, you know? So the connection mm -hmm. thing, just recently, I realized that sometimes uh, I would never want to play games. Okay, this is just one example. I'd never want to play games. You know, my family's big on games. At the holidays, they want to play Upwards, Scrabble, Boggle, um, any game, you know. And, uh, and I would always say, no, 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 I'm not going to play. You guys go ahead. Go without me. Because I really wanted to kind of check out. I wanted to watch TV. I wanted to obsess on my phone. I wanted to be kind of off in la-la land and fantasy. Or I just wanted to be alone. And I realized mm -hmm. that that was a slight form of addiction. And once I played games and once I realized that I'm like, Oh my God, when I am playing a game, I am a hundred percent engaged with everyone around me. I'm not thinking mm. about anything else. And this is like a perfect example of connection for me. And that was just such a light bulb Libby. And wow. that just happened like four months wow. ago, you know? Yeah. Yeah. What a beautiful metaphor and, and, and for sort of life and um, how we, are so tempting. It's so tempting to sort of step back and opt out, you know, even when people are calling us forward and my hat is off to you for saying yes to the family game nights, because, um, 
I personally do not find myself fully engaged in a game when I'm in it. I'm thinking, when is this game going to be over? <laughs> so um, anyway, I, I think that's great. I love that. I love, and it's just, you're such an example, Derek, of how the longer we stay in this work and we have the awareness and we're awake enough to notice what's happening in ourselves, how we just, there's no limit to the growth we can experience. That's beautiful. Love mm -hmm. it. And, you know, and, and, uh, it's interesting to me because you being a coach, like you help people, right? So you take people who are here and then you move them forward. And I love that. And I, I feel like that's a calling, right? One of the reasons I started the recovering CEO is because I felt like, you know, my work is fine. You know, I help companies. I do all these nice things to make improve people's businesses, but how am I really helping people? And I wanted to help at a little bit of a larger scale. Can you talk a little bit about mm -hmm. that, that calling of helping people and how you knew it was for you? And then some of the maybe, um, explain a little bit how you move people forward to growth. Sure. Well, you know, I will say, I think in a lot of ways, I've just always had a, um, a heart for connection and being of service. I'm an Enneagram too, for listeners that are familiar with the Enneagram, which is the helper, you know, on the Enneagram, I, I'm a Myers-Briggs, like every, every test and personality style and quiz sort of cues me up, you know, for this profession. So I come by it really honestly. Um, and at the same time, I, I dabbled in other sorts of helping professions. I worked in social work earlier in my career. You know, I started as an actor, um, you know, growing up and then, and then worked in social work for a number of years. And I stayed home for a few years when my kids were small. And um, then I hired a coach that a friend of mine had used to help me figure out what my next step career-wise would be. And I had applied to go back for a, a master's um, to become a therapist and really thought I wanted to go that route. And then um, worked with this coach for six months. And at that point, outside of becoming a parent, I would now add recovery to this list. But it was the most transformative period of time I had ever spent in my life. This six month period of working with him again, outside of becoming a parent and later recovery, you know, was a, an incredibly transformative and continues to be experienced for me. But I fell in love with the work. And one of the things I love about coaching is we, um, our core belief in coaching is that people are naturally creative, resourceful, and whole. We don't come at looking at people from a place of brokenness, no matter what they're dealing with. And there are absolutely people who are struggling with things that are not appropriate for coaching. You know, people who have unhealed traumas, who want to do a lot of work, you know, looking at family of origin and past um, experiences, that sort of thing. Folks in active addiction are not great candidates for coaching. Uh, they can be, but um, you really, there's an assumed functionality in coaching where people are, um are able to take meaningful steps. And, and I don't actually move people forward per se. What I do is believe that that person holds everything inside of themselves to move themselves forward. And I'm, I'm a midwife, not birthing the baby. So, you know, it's, it's listening deeply. It's asking powerful questions. It's helping the person to get where they say they want to go sometimes somewhere different than they said they wanted to go, hopefully better, and really unearthing some of those answers the person holds for themselves and also getting curious about what are the ways they self-sabotage and hold themselves back. Of course, um, addictive behavior and numbing is a big one. And, and sometimes we'll be going along in coaching and um, it will be revealed sometimes quite a bit into the coaching process. Somebody will come to a session and we're working on, um, you know, next steps for career or how they're going to um, cope following a divorce or some other. I work primarily with 
men and women who are in the middle of really bright, high achieving folks who are in the middle of major life transition. So that can look like all different kinds of things from the quarter life crisis at 25 to moving into retirement, empty nest, career change, what have you. But um, I work with a lot of new and expectant parents, um, first time parents. So anyway, long short, um, you know, sometimes somebody will come and we're working on this other thing and they show up and they say, well, I wonder if the fact that I'm drinking a bottle of wine every night might be getting in the way. be getting in the way of me making this meaningful life change. And, and then we have an opportunity to say like, yeah, well, it might, let's talk more about that. You know, let's, let's explore, you know, what that's about, how long that's been going on. And, um, you know, sometimes we, we take a pause and people head off to therapy or they, you know, decide to get some treatment or, or address that. And um, so anyway, the, the coaching process is, is always about showing up with what is, being in the moment, where are you? Where do you want to go? And and just really, I think the most important quality for coaching is being curious. Um, we always show up not knowing, and we we work with what the client brings. And so, curiosity is something that I have been obsessed with my whole life. You know, to your point, I'm a reader. I share. I know. Uh, Derek's wife for for the listeners and I uh, have always shared a love of great books and are in an online book group together and anyway so um, that natural curiosity has served me you know really well as a coach. Mm-hmm. Gosh, it, it springs so many thoughts to mind. Um, so many thoughts. You know what? One is I just I'm going to send you this book. I just interviewed the author of this book and you have not read this, have you? The Connected oh, Leader. Oh, Connected Leader. I haven't read that. No. Yeah, I'm going to send you a yeah, copy. Yeah, great. Um, Thank you. I think awesome. you, I think you'll like it. Like she's an interesting business coach and she blends like the spirituality of recovery with, you know, um, but, uh, geez, I had Beautiful. so many thoughts when you were talking and then my mind just went blank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I tend to go and go. So you have to stop me sometimes in the middle if you want, if you want to jump yeah. in. Well, but so, yeah, so, um, well, so there is a question I have. So I know you spent a lot of your life as an a- actress, actor, um, mm-hmm. have you taken any of your experience as an actor or knowledge in actor training and, uh, use that in any of your coaching? Like, is that, does any of the things you learn there help with your coaching? Yes. Yeah. Great. Awesome question. First of all, I think when we study acting, um, whether we're doing it at the, you know, as kids or, or more advanced, you know, I studied co- uh, acting in college. What we're learning is to step into another person's mind, heart. We're, we're, we're really getting curious about, we're not acting as if we are trying to become. So it's really taking in some ways empathy to the nth degree, because we're saying, what does it feel like to look through this person's eyes? And so I think people who are drawn to theater are naturally um, building that skill of being able to, to be with, you know, another person and really have a deep amount of empathy, which I think is really key in coaching. The other thing that is interesting that you ask this, because the model of coaching I was trained in is coactive model. CTI is the school and it's, it's one of the, the oldest coach training schools you'll meet. You know, you can't swing a stick in the coaching world without hitting a CTI grad. But the CTI program was started in the 1990s by a couple of out of work actors in New York City. And it's really based on an improv model um, from the get-go. And so there's a lot of um, 
in coaching, we don't come with a preconceived plan. Like, here's what we're going to talk about today. We work with what shows up. So the client might have planned to say like, oh, I want to report back on how my job search is going. But actually, I just got into this conflict this morning with my partner and I just am really stuck here. So can we talk through this? So we work through what shows up and there's not any preconceived questions. We don't go through like a list of accountability the client speaks, and just like improv, I ask questions, you know, much like this podcast is. We didn't have a, and now we're going to hit on this point, this point, and this point. We are we are in dialogue, and that's really the heart of improv and great acting and also the heart of great coaching, in my, in my experience. Okay. And a great podcast. Yeah. No, that's so cool. I, I love improv. I, you know, okay. I have to, I have to be honest here. Cause I've been thinking about going back for an MSW and this and that. And, um, yeah, uh, actually I missed the application deadline at Michigan state and they just told me, Nope, sorry, you got to wait for another year. But, and then I talked yeah, to you the yeah. day after I get that note from the director, cause I'm like bad at deadlines. And, um, and I really think maybe coaching might be better because even though I think I do feel like trauma plays a big role in addiction and trauma plays a big mm -hmm. role. I don't necessarily mm -hmm. need to solve that, but what I am good at is kind of that mm -hmm. improv back and forth. Uh, I think probably listening and getting people to talk about. So maybe yep. I should look into CTI or something. That's very interesting to me. Yeah. Well, you know, off script, you know, anytime you want to talk about that, I, I think there is a, there is a real, um, need for more men in coaching. And I think people who come from that recovery lens have something really unique and, and important to offer. Um, and just a deep ability to be with whatever the client brings to the session, because we really never know what's going to show up. You know, again, we think we're career coaching and all of a sudden, you know, we're talking about some really intense stuff, you know? And so, um, yeah, I think you'd be great, Derek. I'd yeah. love to chat with you about it anytime. I appreciate that. So, so the other, other thought yeah. that I remember now, um, so I've always thought like, so th there is sobriety, right? And there is like not drinking. That's pretty easy. Like it, you mm -hmm. don't pick up a drink. Mm -hmm. But then I think, is any of my behavior something that I would not want my mother, for example, to be watching me do? Or my significant other mm -hmm. or my children mm -hmm. or my grandmother, or whatever, right. you know, like, like would, <laughs> would I be comfortable telling this to my boss, you know, ever? And then, and when you go through that list and then that's really more about, like you said, living with integrity and, you know, and one of the things I want to help people with is to be able to stand on your own two feet, look someone in the eye, not feel that shame. Right. Because I know that yes. I am acting with integrity and, uh, but sometimes people aren't quite right. aware. Like even if they like just, uh, take a couple bucks from, you know, from someone or like small things can impact integrity. And, mm -hmm. uh, until I become aware mm -hmm. that, that this behavior could be bothering me, I don't know. Do, do you ever get you know, as you peel the layer of the onion, do you ever kind of get to those things that I know you mentioned drinking a bottle of wine at night, but I feel like there's so many examples. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think there's so many, there's countless ways of being out of integrity with ourselves, most of all, you know, and I think, um, when you are in, um, community with people in recovery, you hear people talk a lot about the little ways that even people with long-term sobriety, that sometimes some of these behaviors can creep in. And it's like, oh, that's not really living with rigorous honesty. That's not really living um, in transparency and, and integrity. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think for me, I think I, those are always a great sort of red flag that, oh, it's time to plug back in. 
you know, <laughs> to get to work a little harder, you know, to dig a little deeper, because I think there are a lot of ways to you, you gave the example of shame, and wanting to help people um, rise out of that shame and be able to look people in the eye. And I think, um, absolutely, you know, that's the goal. And what are the ways and we all have our different barometers, I guess, for what out of integrity feels like for us, you know, for some people, it's something massive, you know, embezzling money from their workplace or um, having, you know, having an affair outside of a committed relationship or, you know, whatever it might be. For other folks, um, it's more of a princess in the pea situation, you know, that we, something feels off and we have to correct that in order to feel that serenity within ourselves. And I think for me personally, and a lot of folks in recovery, the further along we get in the road, the more like the princess and the pea we are, the more we feel like, okay, I guess I better go back and make that right with that person. You know, I, I think I really need to revise that, that I did, or, or sometimes like, I'm just not going to do that again. I'm going to learn something from this experience of who I was or how I showed up. I mean, I had a thing a year or two ago where I was just having a day and in my worst place. And I'd waited for this cable person all day and um, rearranged my schedule. And I called and I just let this woman who was not the cable person, who was the scheduler, just totally have it. Like I was someone I barely even recognized, someone I hadn't seen for a long time. And I felt so badly after I got up, I kind of sat with it. I had a few minutes of meditation about it. And then I called back and said, hey, I just really need to apologize for how I behaved. Um, This is a really frustrating situation. And no matter how frustrating it is, my behavior was not acceptable. And I want to take accountability for that. I'm really sorry that I did that to your day. And the person was so shocked. (laughs) She was like, oh, oh, it's okay. No one has ever called me back and said that, you know, but, but for me, otherwise it would have like sat like a something in my teeth, you know, all day. And so it was part of, and I think, um, I hope I'm not getting off into a tangent here, but I think the longer we're sort of in this, um, reality of being in recovery, the more we kind of hit the reset button for ourselves not for the woman who expected a call back or deserved one, but so that I can move through the rest of my day and not then take this shame spiral and then bark at my kids and, you know, yell at my spouse and eat a dozen cupcakes, you know, or whatever my sort of way of coping with that discomfort is. Yeah, no, it's very, very insightful, uh, Libby. Um, and it really that's 10 step, right? So when we are wrong, promptly admitted it, like as, as a person in, in recovery, you know, they talk about the grouch and the brainstorm is a luxury we can't afford, which means I can't be that asshole all the time because <laughs> right. I just can't live that way. So I have to like clean the slate daily. Right. Um, totally. and, yep. and that's 100%. all we can really do is control ourselves. Right. Or like clean our side of the street. I can't control anyone else. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. I just listened to open talk today and the guy was saying, you know, a lot of people come to him when they can't stay sober because they think he can help them. And he says, you know what? He said, I want you to get, before I talk to you, I want you to get two weeks of continuous sobriety before I'll talk to you. Because if I talk to you now, it's not going to stick. And he sends them off on their Mm. way. And he says, it's amazing how many people actually get the two weeks because they really want to talk to him, (laughs) which I thought was interesting. I know, right? Yeah. Whatever it takes, right? Yeah. You know, and I think setting boundaries is actually something I kind of struggle with. Like, is there any, like, um, 
Like I'm actually helping. Uh, I don't know if you remember uh, my cousin who was dealing with addiction and mental illness. I, I came to Seattle mm, yes. and brought him back. Yes. Yeah. Well, he's still been struggling. Yep. He's still been struggling. And, you know, he just got out of the hospital again. And, you know, I took him to a meeting but he's like drinking in between meetings, you know, and uh, struggling. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think, you know, this isn't really good. And I don't even totally feel right driving him around or, you know, giving him cigarettes and stuff. How do you, how does someone set, how do I set boundaries? Like, how do I set boundaries where, you know, I say, maybe you don't get a week sober and then call me, you're going to make mm -hmm. it just do that. Mm -hmm. You know, cause he thinks he can't not drink. So he drinks in between meetings and mm -hmm. I, it seems hopeless, mm -hmm. you know, but how does a people, mm -hmm. how does a person mm -hmm. set boundaries? Do you have any general tips on that? Yeah, I do. You know, boundaries, and there are all kinds of ways of, of holding boundaries. And, and, um, I think all of us have sort of our trigger areas where holding boundaries is a little more difficult, especially people of deep empathy. You know, we, we want to, we don't want to feel like we're abandoning people. And yet, you know, all boundaries really are is saying what's okay and what's not okay for us. And we are the self-reference point. And I think this can be really tricky for people in recovery because I think there's a message in a lot of 12-step work that service, service, service. And we sort of um, make a hero of people who surrender their entire lives to service. And, and I think that balance is important. You know, I think part of good boundary setting is actually self-referencing. And maybe if you're not if you don't, if you're not real reliable with yourself, maybe it's checking in with somebody who, you know, whose wisdom you admire and saying, Hey, you know, I'm feeling like I want to set this boundary with this person because it's just killing me to see this person drunk all the time. Or I'm wondering if I'm enabling this person by helping them have as few consequences as possible, you know, for their behavior. So sometimes it means, I think for me, checking in with somebody wiser than myself or, or who has an outside perspective, um, who can help me with that. And then I think, but I think we are a part of the equation. I think boundaries are about what's okay and what's not okay for us. And somebody who was less close to the person you're talking about might not have an issue setting a boundary that because of a relationship, we feel like, oh, um, maybe I really need to, or maybe I don't. I think, I think part of it is taking a step back and just asking ourselves, how much control do we really have here? So for example, a, a dear mentor of mine in recovery likes to say, if you wanted to, if, if, if someone tried to talk you into drinking, is there anything anyone could say to make you drink? And no. I said, no. Yeah. And she says, if you really wanted to drink and were desperate for it and had made up your mind to drink, is there anything anyone could say to you that would change your mind? And the answer is really no. You know, I mean, until the person has that, you know, openness, willingness and open mind, honesty, willingness and open mindedness, you know, they are. So we have less control than we think we have. So I think then when it comes back, if I can't change another person, then what do I need to do to make this work for me and to be able to be a sustainable support for this person? You know, because if setting a boundary means that I can continue the relationship in some capacity, that's probably far preferable than getting burnt out and saying, I'm done, you know, I'm out. So I think, 
that was sort of a complex answer and it's unique to each situation. But I think our kids test our boundaries all the time, right? You know, they, they ask us to do things that we're not really comfortable with. And, and sometimes we have to revise our boundaries. Sometimes we say yes. And then we circle back and say, you know what, I've thought about it some more. I know I said I would drive you to meetings, but I'm really feeling like until you string some time together, um, I, I'm going to need to take a step back. From this situation. And we don't need to give people a lot of reason why or make blame them or make it shame, but we can just set that boundary unapologetically. And honestly, at the end of the day, it's modeling good self-care. Um, you know, boundaries enable, empower other people to set boundaries. So thank you. That's my two cents for today. Free coach, yeah. free coaching tip. Um, <laughs> no, I, I really like that. Um, let me share a concept with you and then I want to hear your feedback on it because this concept again, kind of blew sure. me away and I know we've gone over 30 minutes, yeah. but this is very interesting to me. Um, okay, great. I was reading a book recently and it was talking about trauma and it said that, you know, if you experience trauma at a young age, then you you spend the rest of your life in pain management. And they mean a young age, like from the age of two or four, if something bad happens to you, then you spend or the rest of your life even. or under two. Yes. Yeah. What do you think about yeah. that? That yeah. kind of blew my mind to think that babies spend their life in pain management. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I would have to read more about that specific book, but it makes sense to me. I mean, I think that we are all about survival, you know, human beings, that's how we're wired. We're wired to stay alive, you know, kind of at all costs. And we will take no prisoners to do that. And so I think if we experience deep trauma and pain from a young age, then it is actually a coping and survival mechanism to give ourselves what we think we need to keep keeping on, you know? And so that makes sense to me. I think that unhealed, unprocessed trauma um, that's particularly true. I think that with really good support and deep therapeutic work and recovery work, if, if it's somebody who's struggling, you know, with addiction, of course, not everybody who has trauma ends up in addiction, of course, but we're much more, you know, we're, we're definitely, um, we're, there's a lot of us for sure, you know, with, the, with traumatic backgrounds and big T traumas, as, as they say, you know, wars and, and that sort of thing. And also little T traumas, small things that on the outside, you know, might not look like much, but at our, whatever that young formative age were really impactful for us. So I, I'd say, yes, that makes sense. And there is hope for um, finding a different way to self-soothe, finding a different way to care for ourselves that is much more productive and less maladaptive than, you know, um, just grabbing the closest thing, you know, whether that's eating or, or using or um, getting caught up in other people's stuff or, or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, Libby, I'm really enjoying talking to you and you froze for a second there, but hopefully I think we might be frozen. Okay. Here. Yeah. Hopefully you'll come. Yeah, you did too. Are okay. you back? Yeah. I'm back. Yeah. yeah. Sorry about that. Can you hear me now? I can. Yeah. Great. That's okay. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's very, it's, it's very good. Um, so I'm just trying to think of what else we could say to wrap this up, you know, uh, Sure. What can, what, you know, I know you, you said you, you have a bunch of clients, you know, you kind of, you're busy, right? So you're not really looking for clients. You're just, um, came on here to support me <laughs> and uh, have a conversation. Um, anything well, else coaches you want to are always looking for clients. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, 
I'll tell you, you know, um, similar to folks in recovery, the clients that I want to work with are clients who are ready to work. You know, they are clients who say, for whatever reason, my life is not tolerable the way that it is anymore, whether that's the relationship, the job, the the feeling inside myself, um, health, you know, you name it. There's There's all kinds of ways that we can sort of get fed up with ourselves to a point where we think, okay, I got to try something different because what I've been trying has, hasn't been working for me. So, um, you know, so, so absolutely. If those folks are out there and they're listening, I'd love to hear from you and see if we might be a match. And, and my, also my, my coaching network is broad. And so oftentimes people will get in touch with me and they say, you know, I really am interested in, in weight loss and doing something around this, you know, can you help me? I don't coach around weight loss. Um, I have my own sort of complicated history with, with food and, and um, as many folks, women in recovery especially do, but I have clients that I, I will refer folks out to other people or, you know, people who have different specializations. We are, we, we are a connective network, you know, us coach folks. Um, so absolutely um, would love to hear from folks. And really, I would just say, you know, that in terms of, you know, kind of, I don't know, parting thoughts that, you know, if you're listening to a podcast like this, you're probably listening because either you identify with the story of recovery, or maybe you're hungry for that, or you're hungry for something different in your life. It's life. And you could trust yourself as far as that goes. You know, you can, you can pay attention to the still small voice that says, what if there's something better out there for me? And um, you have what you need to access the right supports to move yourself to a place where you can live your life with more joy, serenity, purpose, meaning. So Derek, thanks for having me on. I so appreciate you doing this work and putting it out into the world. And it's just been an honor and really fun to talk with you today. Uh, thanks, Libby. Uh, yeah, it's great to see you all the way across the country in Seattle. And uh, it's, 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 <laughs> it's, right. been, it's been too long. So let, let's get a win tonight. And uh, maybe we can do this again, you know, in a, in a few months or six months, once we get something more exciting, we can revisit. So thanks for your time. And thanks, everyone Love for it. listening. Sounds great. Thanks for being on the recovering CEO. See ya. Thanks, Derek. Bye. You thought that you could have it all. Life could be a bar But you fell and scabbed your knees